Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the new episode of the Admin and Stir podcast. My name is Caitlin. And I'm Alyssa. And I'm Emma. Woo! How's everyone doing today? Well, it's May the 4th, so I have my Star Wars shirt on and Yay. Star Wars socks. You guys can't see them, but they're there. May the 4th be with you. I didn't wear my Star Wars shirt today. I should have. Oh, Caitlin. I know, I know. I don't think I own a Star Wars shirt. Although in undergrad, I did take a whole class on Star Wars. So I'm that's so, really cool. I'm so jealous of that class. Like I want to take that class. Like you know, how, how did it, how did it colleges, work? Man. It was actually really fun. It was like, um, it was like our sort of transition into college class. And it was very much sort of a sociology slash critical theory, I guess, class where huh. you just basically interpret it as a work of art. And then what does it mean to society? So mine was about misogyny in Star Wars. So if you, have, you guys ever want to do a podcast about that, uh, I got some some resources. That would be fun. That would make for a fun episode. We'd probably yeah. make some enemies, though, like we'd make people mad. You can't we criticize always, Star Wars. We always Al make Gore's people internet. mad. Yeah. <laughs> on Al Gore's internet. <laughs> and Alyssa is famous this week, so we should put that on our Instagram stories. Alyssa has been featured by the University of Tennessee School of Law. Oh my gosh. Go ahead. Explain how you're famous, Alyssa. Oh my goodness. They snapped some picture of me. I was just enjoying myself on a park bench and they snapped a picture of me, of course, when I'm making this awful stank face and I just, I look so unhappy. It, it's, it's truly horrible. And my sister, of course, got the best laugh out of it ever. And she thinks that they actually put it in the magazine because of the target sweater I'm wearing <laughs> because it looks law school-y she says <laughs> you do look like a law I mean you look like you have it together so maybe that's why but the facial expression was a choice I don't know why yeah. they went with that but well my question is who is the creeper going around on campus snapping random pictures of people like, and then claiming they're law students. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't even near the law school. Famous for all the wrong reasons as usual. <laughs> so anyway, Alyssa's going into the law profession after this. <laughs> now that she's an official member of the law school. Well, we are excited to be back today with the final episode of our second season, Queens of Crime. We are sorry for getting this one out a little later than normal. Uh, we've been rushing to finish up the school semester. Um, it's a busy time of year for everyone. We've all been slightly sick. I know I got the vaccine and it knocked me out for a day or so. And so we're all just kind of <laughs> trying to roll on to the end of the semester. But we are excited to be back and to talk to you today about an episode that I'm particularly uh, looking forward to. Uh, today, we're each going to present to you one or two women we believe were falsely accused of a crime and explain why we think they are actually 
they were or are actually innocent. Uh, we're going to be covering a pretty wide range of time periods today from about 1672 through the modern day, which will be interesting. But I also think we'll be able to draw out some fascinating through lines that link many of these women and their stories together. So we're going to let Alyssa go first because hers is the earliest of the stories. And Alyssa, take it away. Okay, so my story's a little out there, so y'all just have to bear with me, but I really wanted to do a witch. She's a witch! So um, that is uh, what I will be doing today. Um, so my story is subtitled The Last Witch of Langenberg. It's The story takes place in Germany, of course. And for this story, I actually used an article uh, published in Duke Magazine, years ago. I can't remember the date. I think it was like 10 years ago. Um, but it was about uh, the Duke history professor Thomas Robichaud and his book, The Last Witch of Langenberg. So this article and a few others that I looked up will be up on our website. So if you want to read more, you're welcome to do it. Okay. So in the German hamlet of Langenberg, in 1672, panic ensued when a young woman named Anna Fessler, who was a new mother in great health, ate a butter cake. So why did panic ensue after eating a butter cake? Well, she was overcome with pain after eating it and then died overnight. And the whole town was wondering, was this a natural death or was it murder? So on Shrove Tuesday, Ava Kustner, the miller's daughter, gathered up freshly baked sweets that were baked by her mother, and she delivered them to the neighbors. One of those neighbors was Anna Fessler, the woman who died. Um, this was kind of a normal practice during this time. You know, you'd, you'd have a nice gesture and deliver sweets to your neighbors um, to kind of warm neighborly ties. It's kind of like what we, or what my family does at Christmas. We bake a bunch of cookies and deliver them to our neighbors just to be friendly. But this particular delivery had terrible consequences. So immediately after Anna's death, the village looked for someone to blame, of course. Well, rumors had already started that it was the miller's wife where the butter cake had been baked. So for our listeners who don't know much about millers at this time, and I didn't know this either, um, millers basically were people who operated a mill, of course. They have a machine to grind grain and to make flour. But 17th century millers were seen as just a little bit better than thieves would be seen as. So they were kind of already seen in this like outcast criminal light. Usually they lived on the edge of the village or town because they had to be near a river or stream. So they were sort of already outcasts. Well, the miller's wife's husband didn't help matters. His name was Hans and he of course liked to collect black cats. So, the, the, you know, the, things are just not looking good for this poor Miller's wife. Her husband was suspected of using sorcery to repair and protect his mill. And instead of helping his neighbors out when times got hard, 
AKA giving away free flour. He was actually rumored to have sold all his extra flour to outside territories, which usually wasn't um, allowed and it was frowned upon. His wife, Anna, which this is kind of confusing, but Anna Fessler is the one who died. Anna Schmieg is the Miller's wife. So Anna was kind of even more mysterious. Um, She was a refugee from war and she had lost her parents at a very early age. She was sent off to be a domestic servant and she kind of is seen as an outsider anyways by the town. I mean, yes, she married Hans, but she still was never seen as a part of the group. So in Langenberg, she was known for drinking excessively. Um, She loved to insult her peers at the local tavern. And she even threatened to kill the neighbor's cows when they grazed on her property. So she wasn't the friendliest individual and she was thought to engage in conversations with the devil. So, you know, a typical woman at this time. But you can kind of see why all eyes immediately turned towards Anna and her husband. Eventually, Anna was brought to trial for murdering Anna Fessler, the pregnant woman. But she wasn't charged with murder. She was charged with witchcraft. So you might say, Alyssa, witchcraft, you know, that's just silly. But at this time in rural parts of Europe, the fear of witches really continued. So the trial lasted for 10 months. No real evidence was brought. Prosecutor actually relied on the mother-daughter relationship between Anna and Ava, who delivered the cake. So basically, Ava had delivered this cake that killed their neighbor. And they kind of wanted to use that accusation to make the daughter flip on the mother. They did do an autopsy, which I found very interesting. The physician found that the death was consistent with a poisoning that could only result from witchcraft. Of course. In the late stages of the trial, Anna was actually subjected to torture on the orders of the chief magistrate uh, with the aim of achieving a confession. The procedure I was reading about it. It's quite gruesome. Uh, Her hands were tied behind her back and she was hoisted up on a pulley. And later her thumbs were twisted with thumb screws. And I'm not sure if our listeners will know what that looks like, but don't try to imagine it. It's absolutely horrible. Um, But torture at this time was considered an aspect of justice. And it was even considered in this town a prerequisite for justice. Her story, uh, basically, she voluntarily, and I'm doing quotes, voluntarily confesses and says that she did it. But the court at this time required the so-called witch to confess to the masses that she was a witch and had a secret life of a witch. And, and when it came time for that, she went completely silent. And the magistrate basically gets frustrated and draws up a list of charges on a document and makes her sign it. After she signs it, you know, basically she's guilty. She is sentenced to death. The executioner actually leads her out of the courtroom then and there. So there with the rest of uh, their neighbors and the whole town basically watched Anna be put into hot irons 
and then strangled with a rope in the gallows. Afterwards, her body was burned to ashes. So, was Anna innocent or guilty? I really don't know, you guys. I I mean, at first when I was reading about this, I was like, oh, she was completely innocent. Like, who would poison a butter cake? That's just wrong. And also there was no evidence at all. And I mean, we're talking about the 17th century. Anything could have happened to this pregnant woman overnight. It didn't have to be the cake. But I, before we discuss it, I'll give you the historian's view of this. So Robuchot acknowledges that he has a hard time believing that the pregnant woman wasn't a victim of a foul deed. He said it just doesn't make a lot of sense. The young mother was healthy. She died so suddenly. She didn't have any violent illness or, you know, pre-existing condition that they knew of. So he concludes that her demise was consistent with arsenic poisoning. What he does say is that Millers were among the few people who could buy arsenic at the time to control rats in their mill. So that is the story of Anna Schmieg. I always think these stories of witchcraft are so interesting because like they go, they're so gendered and they, they go after the wife. How do we know it wasn't the husband who also sounds like a pretty terrible like neighbor that no one liked him either and yet we instantly go because it's a cake I guess we go to the wife maybe they were in on it together but did the did the husband ever get in trouble for um it? not that I saw but I haven't read the whole book yet but I don't think so I, th- I think it was just her she was on her own you know yeah it's a pretty in that way then it's a pretty textbook kind of witchcraft accusation oh yeah very much shaped by gender and that, you know, it has to do with food and poison and all of those are often coded very feminine and historically. And, and I, I found that interesting as a kind of story of witchcraft. Yeah, I mean, I was just kind of frustrated that there was no other evidence. Like, I, well, at least in this article, maybe the book expands more, but they never looked at anybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like immediately yeah. they're like, well, it has to go to the town outcast. But I I did find it interesting, Caitlin, you brought up a good point that it's kind of textbook, like Shrove Tuesday, I mean, is a religious holiday. So that makes the murder even, I don't want to say better, but you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, it had to have been a witch to kill somebody on a religious holiday. What do you think, Emma? No, I think you're right, Alyssa. I think there's just this like conflagration of things that make this so juicy that it becomes sort of hard to it becomes sort of hard to see the past because it's just a good story you know what I mean but I agree Caitlin I mean what's who's not to say the husband was in on it I gotta say if I'm getting clapped in hot irons and taken to the gallows and my husband is not aren't you gonna like I would tell I'd be like hey and maybe they had kids maybe she doesn't want their kids to die they did have kids because the daughter delivered the thing. Yeah, I I would definitely be turning in whoever. <laughs> I would tattle at that point. It. What do you have to lose? I yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I I I mean, hot irons. Uh uh-uh. uh. Hey, once they pull out that little screw that they put under your thumbnail, I would be giving up everybody in that town. <laughs> like, 
no fully same fully that's a I, that's our advice for this podcast is be a tattletale if yep. you have to torture be. is involved especially hey snitches might get stitches but witches get the thumb screw so i mean <laughs> just turn them in <laughs> oh my that goodness. was great that, that was, was really good. We should get that on a t-shirt. That's my new motto. Yeah. Can we put that on a hat for me? Yeah. Um, so I'll add a little bit more juice, Emma and Caitlin. The theory goes, she was not pursuing the pregnant neighbor, but rather she wanted to kill her son-in-law, Philip Kusner. He had gotten her daughter pregnant before they were married and brought scandal into the family. So for their improper relationship, the not yet newlyweds had to endure two weeks in prison and the daughter's forced marriage to Kusner, a supposed village idiot with no claims to property, had disturbing consequences for Hans and Anna, who actually lost what would have been their retirement. I mean, usually you marry your daughter off to somebody a little bit wealthier than you so you can retire nice and have a great life. Also, if he's if he's really not all that, what is the evidence that he got her pregnant consensually also? Because if you're taking revenge to kill somebody, I don't know. Also, okay, she's innocent. That convinced me. No. <laughs> She did nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, but also like if you're going to put arsenic in a cake and try to kill somebody with it, you're definitely not going to give that cake to the person you don't intend to kill. Yeah, if you're going to do it on purpose. This, (laughs) I mean, this is like, all I can see is the emperor's new groove when they poison the wine and Kronk and Yzma like dump it out. I mean, she's not going to give the cake with arsenic to the wrong person. But yeah, I don't know. That convinced me that she was innocent, but also bad last minute. Maybe she felt guilty. Oh, so you think maybe maybe the daughter knew there was poison in the cake? But why poison your pregnant neighbor? (laughs) Yeah, why not just that was my question. Is what would she have had against the neighbor specifically? Yeah, that doesn't quite Hmm. add up. And also, they never talk about the neighbor's husband. Which I really wish they would have because, okay, who is she pregnant with? And a family member had to have requested the autopsy. At this time, they probably wouldn't have done an autopsy unless it was okayed by the family. But it, they never talk about that. I don't know. I thought she was innocent. But then that, that extra layer about the son-in-law, I mean... She could have very much wanted to kill him, but I still don't understand how she would give the poisoned cake to the wrong person. Maybe her daughter was just really dumb too. Maybe that's why they got (laughs) together because they were both village idiots. (laughs) I also, I also, the thing about like being in the modern world is that there is like a lot more specific terminology when you study more like modern history than early modern and so like whenever I come across terms like village idiot I'm always like does that mean that he had like legitimate like impairment or was he just kind of a douchebag do you know what I mean like which one is it yeah yeah that is interesting I loved that story though I can't wait to talk about it yeah so moral of the story don't accept cakes from your neighbors 
says the person who said is their family is the one that passes out cookies every Christmas. <laughs> we better be checking those cookies, Emma, if we ever get any. Oh, Alyssa might be getting ideas. That's right. You know, Alyssa me. will never mess with your children ever. <laughs> exactly. What I found interesting about it too is the the social outcast aspect, um, in that these people were not the the height of the town, and I think that that they were you know outside socially that she was a foreigner as well, and that and that could have added to some of the prejudice against her and their willingness to believe that she was guilty. And I think that segues nicely into my story. And so I guess I'll go ahead and, and tell mine. I totally planned that. Did you? Well, there we go. No. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So my story uh, happens in 1863. So we're jumping ahead 200 years or so. And in 1863, a 60 year old woman named Josefa Chepita Rodriguez and another man, Juan Silvera, who was widely believed to have been Chepita's illegitimate son, They were both accused of murdering a cotton trader named John Savage in San Patricio, Texas. And although Chipita was poor, she was a businesswoman, actually. And for many years, she made her money furnishing travelers with meals and a place to rest on the porch of her lean-to shack near the Nueces River in Texas. And when John Savage turns up dead, he was murdered by an axe uh, and his body was thrown in the river north of town. And I just wanted to say, what is it with women being accused of murdering people with axes? That's something we've uh, run through, into a couple times in this podcast. So after his body was found in the river, there was very little investigation as to what happened. Local authorities blamed Chipita and her son for the murder, claiming the two of them committed the crime to steal about $600 in gold that Savage was carrying. And while the trial records for this case are largely missing due to a fire in the courthouse, what we do have shows some pretty shoddy police work going on once Chipita was arrested and a very unfair trial. So authorities actually found the $600 worth of gold on Savage's body in the river. So it's pretty obvious she didn't steal it, that that wasn't, that theft was not the motive, even though Chipita could have used the $600. She was poor. She lives in a a lean-to kind of shed. So she could have used the $600 in gold for sure. And furthermore, during the actual trial, the sheriff who arrested Chipita and her son was also served as the foreman of the jury. So that's pretty biased. And many of the other 30 jury members, who were all white men, of course, Chapita herself was from Mexico, were were convicted. Many of them were convicted felons themselves, as this was kind of the height of the Wild West. There were a lot of felons running around in the Wild West. And so not exactly the the best jury you would expect. Um, Chapita also did not have a defense counsel. And it's unlikely that she even spoke much English. So she couldn't really even understand what was going on in the trial. Her only defense was repeating the phrase, no soy culpable, which is I'm not guilty, over and over again in in Spanish, as that was the only defense she was able to give. And plus the jury, uh, they found her guilty, but they actually recommended mercy for her because there was just no evidence that she was actually, she actually did it. So but the, despite this recommendation for mercy, the judge, Benjamin F. Neal, ordered her executed anyway, and she was hanged on November 13th, 1863. 
And personally, I think the execution was both racially and class motivated. I do think Chapita was innocent. That we know of, there was no direct evidence tying her to the murders. There was just nothing there, that no really reason for her to do it. And although I do think her illegitimate son, Juan Silvera, may have been involved, whether or not he was, though, as, as lower class Mexicans, both of them proved to be good scapegoats, like we talked about with Anna in, in um, Germany, that both of these these people would have been, you know, seen as outcasts or different outside of white society, especially, and they would have made good scapegoats for this murder. At one point, a mob even tried to lynch Chapita while she was being held in custody. So they tried to execute her before her, she even had a trial. I also thought maybe it was her son may have been involved, but that she was trying to protect her son. And so she didn't want to give too much information. That may be why she didn't put up too much of a defense that, or she just didn't really know what was going on because she probably didn't speak English. And so we'll never actually know whether that's the case or not. But actually in 1985, the Texas state legislator passed a resolution absolving Chapita Rodriguez of murder. So she has gotten some, there was a recognition that a mistake took place there that she should not have been hanged for this crime she didn't commit. So nevertheless, the legend says that Chapita's ghost continues to haunt San Patricio. Uh, she's said to appear as a specter with a noose around her neck, wailing from the river bottom. And like a lot of women we've discussed, she's, she's also been the subject of a lot of pop culture media. Uh, numerous books and newspaper articles have been written about her. She's also been the subject of two operas, like local opera companies and, and students at one of the local universities has have created this opera about her. I haven't watched it or anything, but it would be kind of interesting to see, which I thought that was that was pretty cool. So anyway, that's the story of Chapita Rodriguez, who I think was killed because she was this easy scapegoat for this Wild West murder. Man, your lady Whoa. haunts people. She does. It's so cool. I feel so bad for her. Every time I, everything I read about her, I just felt so bad. She was but 60 years old. How is she going to hatch it some man? The fact that she's wailing from the river bottom, like, oh, I know. Oh, man. I hope woman. that's not her. I hope that's a different specter of a different spirit and that she is resting very peacefully. I know. This really reminded me of, okay, you know, in Chicago with the cell block tango, how there's sort of like all of the white women yeah, and they get away with it. And then there's this ethnic racialized Polish other who can't really speak English that well and can't defend herself. It's so similar to this that it's really heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah, this case is messed up. I know. I just felt so bad for her. And like the fact that she had such a terrible trial like against her in that it it's obviously, you know, it wasn't fair. And even at the time, there were calls for her to have a retrial because it was just so ridiculous, kind of the sham trial that she went through, but mm -hmm. nothing ever came from it, those calls, and she was hanged anyway. Even though they, the jury, even the jury was led by the sheriff, and they still recommended that she not be hanged, that she, you know, have some lenience. And then the judge goes and executes her anyway. My goodness gracious. I couldn't. I felt so bad. And the fact that the cotton trader's name is John Savage. Yeah. That's, it, this is definitely the Wild West. <laughs> right. I wish we still had the trial records because I think it would be interesting 
to see a little bit more into what did they have any motive for the besides the $600 in gold that she didn't even steal. And I mean, the fact that she kept saying no soy culpable. Culpable, I guess. Or I don't culpable, I sorry. My Spanish is a little, a little rusty. Um, but I, I mean, you can definitely get what that is without any... <laughs> any uh knowledge of spanish whatsoever so i mean it's not like she admitted to anything yeah and then the whole like history of the wild west and and especially south texas like this is interesting and that she's viewed in a certain sense as an outsider even though 20 years ago this would have been home for her i mean it was home for her because the united states had only taken that part of northern mexico in 48 so less than 20 years earlier and so it, it, I found that interesting too that just the the fact that you know she was there and just trying to make a living for herself and caught, like caught why is the mob that. trying to lynch her racism what is that about yeah I guess because they thought she was guilty I don't know if they tried to lynch the son too but anyway it's just a sad Pe- story people be crazy they deserve to be haunted Man, that was a cool story. So pretty similarly to Caitlin, today I am profiling two different women whose lives were forever shaped by the racism and misogyny of the carceral state uh, in two separate centuries. Um, So in 1896, Maddie Crawford was sentenced to life in prison in the Georgia State Penitentiary after she was convicted of murder in Meriwether County, Georgia. Maddie, an African-American woman, was accused of killing her abusive stepfather. The Atlanta Constitution reported one day, quote, when he came into the house, she took up a chair and brained him with it, which go off, queen. I can't. (laughs) This is literally, it's Lucille Bluth good for her moment. But unfortunately, Maddie spent years being transferred from prison to prison in the grueling convict labor leasing system. So convict leasing was a system of forced penal labor, which largely involved African African-American men, though women like Maddie Crawford could and did get caught in its grip. Maddie's impressive strength and desire to learn eventually led to her being trained as a blacksmith, and she was eventually promoted to the rank of trustee, not trustee, trustee, uh, T-R-U-S-T-Y, at Milledgeville State Prison Farm, where she became well-known for her blacksmithing skills and her male-coded attire. And so in her 2016 book, No Mercy Here, Gender Punishment and the Making of Jim Crow Modernity, Sarah Haley argues that the development of new, quote, technologies of domination, like the Southern convict labor leasing system, both created and reified othering of Black women specifically during Jim Crow. So Haley basically argues that convict labor leasing was a pillar of the Jim Crow order, and it both created and supported larger systems of terror and structures of economic and political subordination. Maddie Crawford figures as well in Talitha LaFloria's 2015 book, Chained in Silence, Black Women and Convict Labor in the New South. LaFloria argues that Maddie practiced modes of, quote, everyday resistance. This is a term proposed by the late historian Stephanie Camp that basically means hidden or indirect expressions of dissent. Um, And you can see that in sort of the way that she is trying to defy these expectations of a prisoner by being basically basically the the best blacksmith around. The Atlanta Constitution ends up running this huge story on her in 1903, calling her 
one of the best blacksmiths around. And so she's recognized for her skill, even as a prisoner, but ultimately her story is not triumphant despite her great competence reported by white and black observers and even Atlanta newspapers. She was a victim of what LaFloria calls quote, social rape. And she says this is, quote, a unique form of physical and psychological oppression experienced by African-American women that functions as a total attack against the whole person, affecting the victim's physical, psychological, and social identity. And she says this is typified by Maddie, who was beaten out of wearing skirts by penal farm bosses. So she ends up dressing in fully male-coded attire and becomes well-known for that. LaFloria argues that's not a choice that she's making independently. She sort of has to reject her own femininity to protect herself. And I think that's also true for the the next person I'm going to be talking about, who um, is another African-American woman who suffered legal consequences for striking back at an abuser. And this woman's name is Centoya Brown. If you live in Tennessee or if you have followed the, the news For the past 10 years, you might have heard her name. In 2004, Centoya was convicted of the murder and robbery of Johnny Michael Allen. Allen was a youth pastor and Sunday school teacher, although local teenage waitresses found him creepy and said that he would often hit on them. So go figure. Centoya was 16 years old and a victim of sex trafficking at the time of the murder. She claimed that Allen had paid her $150 to have sex with him and that she feared for her life during their encounter, leading her to shoot him. And I think, you know, his sort of prosecutors try to argue that basically he wasn't soliciting her. He was just trying to help her. Um, And so I say that about the teenage waitresses to say he had a habit of soliciting underage women for sex. So prosecutors argued that Brown killed Allen while he was sleeping in order to rob him. She ends up taking $172 out of his wallet. So not a huge amount of money. Um, But similar to Chapita in a lot of ways where they're sort of arguing that robbery is the motive, although Chapita didn't take any money and $172 is not enough of an incentive to kill someone, I think. Um, But she was found guilty of robbing and murdering Allen and she was sentenced to life in prison at 16 years old. She served her sentence at the Tennessee Prison for Women, which is a maximum security detention facility in Nashville. Under her original sentence, which was put out in... 2004, she would have been eligible for parole at age 67. Again, she went into prison at 16. While in prison, Brown earned her GED. And then she also got a bachelor's of professional studies in organizational leadership, also from Lipscomb in 2019. So even though she's in prison, she's still doing what she can to improve herself and educate herself as much as possible. She's basically called this model prisoner. She does everything that she can to sort of present the best face for clemency before the Tennessee Board of Parole. So this there's this renewed interest in her case in 2017 um, because people are kind of like, why was the 16-year-old who was being sex trafficked punished for being sex trafficked? So initially the governor at the time, Bill Haslam, commutes her original sentence to 15 years and then she's released in 2019. But if you'd like to know more about her, there are a couple of documentary couple of documentaries, um, Me Facing Life, Centoya's Story. She published a memoir, Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison C- System. And then also there's a Netflix special right now online. It's called Murder to Mercy, the Centoya Brown Story. So I really connected these two together and I wanted to talk about them both because 
my habit this season has been to sort of talk about modern occurrences and how historical occurrences shape those. And I think that Centoya's years of incarceration and difficulty in proving her innocence as a victim of violence and child sexual abuse obviously mirrors Maddie's in many ways. And although Centoya was eventually pardoned, she still spent a number of years in prison. And I think it raises questions about the ways in which we question the innocence of Black women, even when those women themselves are victims. Yeah, I think those are great. They're not great stories. They're terrible stories, but good stories to link together. I didn't realize Centoya Brown had been released. I thought she was still in prison. I'd heard her name before and a bit about her case, but I didn't realize she'd been released. So that's good. It reminds me a lot of the Eileen Warnos story. Yeah, no, there are so many ways in which this is very similar to Eileen. The only, I don't know if this is controversial or not. I guess the only real difference is that basically the first time Centoya shoots someone, she gets caught. And I think a lot of that has to do with she's a young Black woman. And we sort of, socially, there is this idea, this horrible racist idea that for some reason, she's automatically a criminal. And I think Eileen got away with it for a little bit longer because of there isn't that initial assumption. But I mean, to me, it's pretty clear that this is self-defense. Yeah. And the fact that she's 16, like it, it's kind of like they didn't even take that into account. I, I, I don't know. This, this case definitely blew me away. I heard her name before and I kind of knew what happened, but not to this, this extent, because I, when you were talking, Emma, I just kept thinking to myself, of course she's innocent. <laughs> like, how do you people not see this? I, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, and and also- I, I Oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to add some more juice if that's okay. Yeah, or go not for really it. juice, but it's something to be angry over. So like one of the major debates here is whether she killed him while he was actively sexually assaulting her versus waiting until he was asleep. And, but he's naked in bed asleep, dead. So obviously why would this, if this youth pastor Sunday school teacher is hoping to, I don't know, convert her to the Lord, why is he nude? I don't understand. There's obviously- I never read that part of the Bible. (laughs) Yeah, there was obviously something going on here that was not, that was terrible. Um, And I I do think it's interesting the parallels you drew between her and, and Maddie in that they both were arrested for attacking their abusers and that Maddie was arrested for attacking her was it her father her step yeah her father her stepfather who was abusive to her as well and how they both of these women got sentenced to very harsh life sentences for this crime if it was a crime yeah and I I mean it just makes you question what the definition of innocence is because it's always innocence until proven guilty which I actually think it's guilty until proven innocent but we can talk about that um but it it makes you kind of wonder like are these definitions of innocence changing and I think Emma hit it right on the head about the whole race factor immediately it couldn't have been self-defense and it's probably racially motivated I don't know I I think that's something we can talk about. Like, what is innocence? I, if you're protecting yourself, I, I, for me, I, 
imagine myself in those women's shoes and I would sure hope someone would stand up for me and be like, uh, no, she was protecting herself, but no one did for these women. I don't understand that. And I think the thing that makes links these two in my mind so strongly also is that they felt like they each felt like they had to do so much. I I don't want to call it personal development because that sounds very, I don't know, clinical, but they had to do so much to prove themselves worthy. Like Maddie Crawford has to become the best blacksmith in Georgia pretty much to not get beaten every day on the farm. And Centoya Brown has to get 72 bachelor's degrees just for someone to think, Hey, maybe a 16 year old can't consent to paid sex with a 40 something year old. Yeah. And it's sort of that idea that, you know, black people and black women especially have to be the very, very best in order to be treated like a human person, which is really sad. But I felt like they were really very similar because they both are clearly exceptional, but it's awful that they have to be exceptional to prove their own humanity. What I think is interesting too about this is, and I, and why I appreciate what you just said, Emma, in that we often look at these women or anyone, you know, in the prison system who works to get a GED or works to get a degree and or like Maddie works to have a profession and we think about like look at them making the best of a bad situation or or look at how much they've improved their lives and but what you said you know makes us think you know maybe they're doing this because they feel like they need to prove that they're still human beings and that it's a kind of a darker way to look at it but also one that's definitely true and that we should recognize that why do they feel the need that they have to do this? And perhaps it is a part of having to prove yourself and prove your innocence and, or prove your willingness to change um, so that you can get some sort of lenience. Maybe something to the effect of they understand that society sees them as outcasts and backwards. So if they get an education and start to look like society says they should look like, then they'll get their chance to tell their story, which I think is so sad. Um, And it's horrible that, you know, this just happened just recently. And and we're still going down this path where we're not all human beings. And we should be. We all should see each other equally, but it's just... Yeah, this one brings you down. A through line through all of this, all of these stories is is that these women were outsiders in a certain sense of the, you know, white, I guess, I'll, I'll just say outsiders because I guess in Germany it was slightly different, but that they weren't exactly viewed as, as part of the community, the dominant community, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they were subjected to this often unfair or unjust kind of legal action against them. And, and I think that's something we've seen in certain sense throughout the podcast that women who are outside of the, the normative kind of society are often targeted in whatever sense that means. And so I think that's kind of a, a good thought perhaps as we wrap up the season to, to think about and to talk about a little bit. I think after hearing 
the stories that you guys brought and thinking about um, the stories that I brought in today, I keep returning to this idea of social rape that Talitha LaFloria talks about. And I don't mean this is not in any way meant to trivialize like this is not meant to trivialize sexual assault in any way, obviously. But I do think that so much of this episode and so much of this past season is sort of about the unique physical and psychological oppression that creates trauma in women. And that trauma then causes them to create you know, I don't want to say problems, but to do, to do things that aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily make sense. And so I think being trauma informed historians is especially helpful when, when you're talking about gender history and the history of crime, because I think, you know, the women today, and even people like Lizzie Borden are sort of ostracized due to, you know, what they look like or what their Mm -hmm. family is like. And ultimately excluding women from communities for little to no reason can cause larger problems. And ultimately, I think that what the season has taught us is that misogyny has very real consequences for women and it can have very real consequences for men. And so maybe let's think about the perpetuation of misogyny and how that can harm men's lives as well. It's sort of like, um, in cold mountain when uh renee zellwinger is like uh they created the weather and then they want to stand out in the rain and and be and say oh it's raining (laughs) like it's the same thing but yeah i definitely think that as as we move on with the pod i want to think more about how you know social rape if that's what you want to call it or just in general being ostracized can have an effect on women and the communities around them as well Yeah, there are so many victims in all of these. I mean, the women are often victims. Sometimes, obviously, the people who were victims of crime were were victims of this system as well. But even the perpetrators, in a lot of ways, were also victims of this misogynistic kind of society and and the issues that that brings and the inequalities and that that can often bring to people's lives. Yeah, and I I think, of course with this season, we've seen a lot of the inequalities, but hopefully with next season, we'll see kind of different results that these inequalities and kind of Emma touched on the ostracization, um, how women can turn that around and um, become, I don't know, formidable beings in, in society and really show society firsthand in these inequalities and how we should change if if that makes sense yeah and with that i guess it's a good time to introduce our topic for our next season we are going to be taking a bit of a break over the summer i have to cram in studying for my comprehensive exams which are in september so wish me luck as i read 150 more books this year 
So we will be back mid-September or so to bring you our exciting third season. Yay, we've done three seasons, which we are excited to announce will be named Powerful Women. And in each episode of our third season, we will profile a woman in history who held important political, social, or cultural power. And we will look at how gendered ideas of the world around them shaped their lives and accomplishments. So it should be fun. And with that, that's all the time we have today for our podcast. I hope everyone has enjoyed our second season, which we're wrapping up, Queens of Crime. I know the three of us have had a fabulous time talking about these notorious women and hope that you have as well. In the meantime, uh, enjoy your summer as we're waiting around for our third season. Uh, Get vaccinated and we will see you all soon. For more information on previous and upcoming episodes, check out our website, adminandstir.wixsite.com. Keep up with us on Instagram and Twitter at admin and stir. And if you have any questions you'd like to ask us, please send them via DM or email us at admin and stir at gmail.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.